Zechariah. Because sometimes, sometimes it is worthy to study one facet of a diamond, to study one particular detail, to study one particular nuance, because it is so beautiful and so captivating that that one singular idea can capture our mind and hearts and bring us comfort and consolation. But there are other times when it is equally beautiful to see the whole diamond. This is the very reason why when we buy our spouses rings and engagement rings and necklaces and stuff, we don't just give them one facet of a diamond on there. We don't just say, well, every part of a diamond's beautiful, honey, so have one facet. We want to give the whole because the whole is impressive, because the whole is a collection of facets of beauty, because the whole exudes all of this majesty and we know what is entailed within it and it just inundates and overwhelms us with its beauty. And so while for sure we may go over Zechariah 13 and 14, especially if we have extra time in the new year, in more detail It is worthy to see these two chapters, these two final chapters together, because we want to be overwhelmed. We want to be flooded. We want to be inundated with just blessing after blessing after blessing of all of these that this final chapters entail. And in doing so, that will tie us to Christmas, because really what we are seeing in Zechariah 13 and 14, and this is why it's so providential not only to cover these chapters together, Together, but to capture, to capture both of these chapters today on Christmas, we are seeing these two chapters, the end game of Christmas, all that Christmas bought. When the scriptures speak of peace on earth, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we are going to have a taste of it. And my goal and my agenda is that we are overwhelmed with just a deluge of information, but not just information, seeing promise after promise, blessing after blessing, benefit after benefit, and being overwhelmed by all of that and thereby treasuring the full weight of what took place of what we are celebrating this morning. There is a saying There is a saying, and this is how I think we can package it all together, that the end is tied with the beginning. The end is tied with the beginning. Now, this is true, and this can be true in literature. I remember one time my kids were listening to this boxcar children's series, and they're all after the original boxcar children's one through 19 or 20 or whatever. Now they have like 156 books. And my son was commenting that in the first five minutes of the audiobook, he already knew who did it every single time because it's just a formula. Perhaps it's written by an AI or something like that. In any case, he just knew at the beginning, whoever was introduced, this person, random person, is the criminal, and he was always right. So he stopped reading Boxcar Children at that point because it became pointless. The end is linked with the beginning. And it's not just in literature. It's also in the scriptures, most importantly. We know that. In the beginning, God created. What do we have at the end? Not just an old heavens and old earth, a new heavens and new earth. The old is tied with the new. The beginning is tied with the end. We have a last Adam, that is Christ, because there was a first Adam. The end is tied with the beginning. In the book of Revelation, you have a lot of plagues that mirror the plagues of the book of 
Exodus because the end is tied with the beginning. In the book of Revelation, you have the days of creation alluded to. Why? Because the end is tied with the beginning. Over and over and over and over again, what we have is the beginning is tied with the end. And that is exactly the case with Christ's birth as well. The end is tied with the beginning With Christ's birth, we know that it is a spectacular miracle. It is a spectacular moment. This is the word become flesh. This is climactic. This is the culmination of prophecy and history and the plan of God. This is the securing of redemption. This is the breakthrough of light into darkness, the uniting of Jew and Gentile. And we see that in, say, the book of Luke, where from the very first words of the book of Luke, it says that All that God did in the first advent was the fulfillment of his plan. It talks about how God begins to speak after years, years, centuries of silence because this moment was so important. It talks about how God sent specifically the angel Gabriel out of all the angels. Why? Because Gabriel was the messenger of the prophecies of Daniel. And now that the prophecies of Daniel were beginning to be fulfilled, he sends the same messenger for the purpose of symmetry to show fulfillment. There is much happening. Mary's Magnificat or Elizabeth's speech or Zechariah's declaration all demonstrate how the gospel and how the baby Jesus will accomplish covenants and promise and plan for both Jews and Gentile. The world will be changed. In fact, in Luke 2, it's for this very reason that Luke lists all of these rulers and all of these governors and all of these leaders within Israel and in the Roman Empire. Why? Because God arranged the entire world order to welcome his son. All of this is taking place. Why? Because Christmas is the perfect moment. There are no mistakes in the life of Christ. There are no random chances in his time on this earth. And Christmas is a declaration, a perfect moment designed by God to say, this is my son and heaven and earth welcome him. It is not only the Jewish people that welcome him in part or the Gentiles with the Magi years later, but even heaven, heaven erupts in praise and welcomes the Savior. It is a perfect moment, natural and supernatural, national and international, designed by God to demonstrate without a shadow of a doubt and to declare the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the perfect moment. And within this perfect moment at the beginning that initiates and inaugurates Christ's time here, you have the end. It's fascinating that when the angels shine forth their glory in Luke chapter 2, the language is very unique. The language is very unique. When it speaks of the glory of God surrounding them, that phraseology is only used in the book of Acts about Christ's eschatological glory, about the glory that will be revealed in the end. And likewise, when the angels praise in Luke chapter 2 and say the words, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. There is no peace on earth at that moment. It's very obvious that there's no peace on earth at that moment, but there will be peace in the end. They, that is the shepherds who experience what the angels declare as the glory of God illuminates the sky around them, they weren't just seeing heaven, they were seeing the future. They were seeing the future 
at that moment because God wanted to show, as he always does, the beginning is tied with the end, with the end. And so because the beginning is tied with the end and because the beginning trajects to the end and that was deliberately set in Christmas, it is fitting for us and providentially fitting for us to cover what Christmas bought. If the beginning is tied with the end, if the beginning moves to the end, what's the end like? You could simply put it this way. If the shepherds, at the moment that they saw the glory of God, not only saw heaven, but they saw the future, what did they see? What did they see? And in Zechariah 13 and 14, we see what they saw. We see what they saw. Zechariah is a book, and if you've been with us for this series, it's a book about Yahweh remembering. That's the name Zechariah. That's what it means. And the book of Zechariah is arranged around a series of night visions, eight night visions. He had one after the other in a single night that recount the promises of God to Israel, the promises of God to the nations, and the promises of God about the Messiah. And in the book of Zechariah, it even tells you how to apply those visions in your life that God requires based upon the fact that he's faithful for you to be faithful, for you to be sincerely faithful, that if you're going to fast, you fast for him. If you're going to celebrate, you celebrate for him and not yourself. That's found in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. And in chapters 9 through 14, what we have in the book of Zechariah is God says, I don't just make promises, I have a plan. I have a way to put it all together. And God puts it all together through two stages of redemptive history. You could think of it simply a two-step plan. There will be a time of the Gentiles. That's what we're living in right now. That's the time when Jesus comes riding on a donkey, the conqueror among many conquerors, including Alexander the Great. That's the time when he, as Zechariah 11 says, will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Does this sound familiar? This is the time when he will be betrayed and rejected by his own people. This is the time when he will die on the cross. This is also the time that leads to a time when a false shepherd, the Antichrist, will come and ravage the people of Israel. This is all in chapters 9 through 11. But there's a second stage to his plan, and that is not only a time for the Gentiles, but a time for Israel. And that's in 12 through 14. This is the time when Christ returns. And you always save, let's put it this way, the best for last. And here we are in the last stage, and we've already seen how all Israel will be saved. They will be delivered from physical danger, from their enemies. We have seen that they will be spiritually saved as the Spirit is poured out upon them and they are all confessing and mourning and repenting individually by themselves without any prompting from someone else. There's no peer pressure going on. It is the whole nation, man and woman and child, all of them mourning family by family alone at this time to love the Savior they never loved. That is what will take place in chapter 12. And you say, Can it get better than that? Of course it can. That's why there's chapters 13 and 14. And all of this is to say this, Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. You might read chapters 13 and 14 and you might say, I've never heard this before. I don't even remember reading this before. That's okay. God does. God does. He remembers promises we forget. He remembers promises we didn't even know he made. 
He remembers them. And in chapters 13 and 14, he shows you all the results of what he will do for Israel and thereby the world and inundate you and overwhelm you with promise after promise, blessing after blessing. And through all of that, and don't miss how this all comes together, we see what the good shepherd secured from Christmas onwards. We see what Christmas bought, so to speak. We see the end game of Christmas. And so I'd like to give you, in the time that we have, four major points about four major categories of blessings that Christmas trajects that are found at the end of this book that Yahweh remembers. And if we can be overwhelmed by them and think that is so beautiful, that is so lovely, then you know how beautiful Christmas really is because you know all that it really means because the beginning is tied with the end. So with that in mind, and although we could go into much more detail, I am planning to survey through these chapters and let us cover the first point, which is found in the whole of chapter 13, and that is cleansing. This is the first point, cleansing, chapter 13. We know that Israel has been saved, all Israel has been saved, person by person, family by family, every single individual man, woman, and child, royal, non-royal, priestly, non-priestly, every single person, regular or unique, all saved. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, they will be cleansed. Chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, the day of Yahweh, the eschatological day of the Lord, in the end times, a fountain will be opened. Now, we know what a fountain is. It's a water fountain, but not the kind that you get a drink of water from in the hallway or such. It is a fountain that springs forth water. It gushes forth water effusively. And you might say, well, why a fountain? Why does it talk about it in those terms? Well, if you've ever had children, you realize how powerful this metaphor is. Have you ever noticed that young children just have a knack for getting dirty? I mean, this is even on commercials when they use for Tide or whatever it may be. They just, people have a knack when you wash them, when you clean them, then they just get dirty again. And I remember talking about this with one of the parents and they said, I just wish I had a hose and I could just keep spraying them perpetually. It's the same phenomena that we have with cars. When you wash a car, even in Southern California, for some weird reason, though it never rains, when you wash a car, it rains just enough to get your car dirty. You know? And everyone says, well, then we should just all wash our cars all the time. That's what we should do to stop the drought. But in any case, the point is, is that our problem is this. We tend to get dirty. Children do, cars do, but we spiritually do more. And we just accrue these stains of sin. But here's what God says, and here's the nature of cleansing, and here's the nature of true purification. It's like a fountain. It never stops. It never stops washing your sin. It's like a fountain. The water is clean and fresh. The water is pure and refreshing. The water is 
a deluge of water, not just a trickle or a stream, and it will wash everything away, and it will constantly do that. There will never be a second where impurity remains on you in any single form. There will be a fountain open. For who? For the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right now, God is zooming in on the city of Jerusalem because it is the epicenter of all of this activity. But it is implied for all of God's people, Israel and even the Gentiles, that this would be true of them. But for this very reason, it is noteworthy that it says the house of David, the royalty, and for who else? the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This kind of forgiveness that washes all your sin away, that washes you totally clean, no stain remains at any single moment of time, that is not just for the people who look good or people of certain social standing. That is for all those that God has chosen equally. Equally. For the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I love this, for sin and for impurity. You say, what does that mean? Sin is when you disobey God. Impurity refers to not only the crime that you have committed, but the terrible stigma, the terrible stench, the terrible stain that it carries, and it causes you to be separated from God. Here is what the text is saying. You want to know what the level of purification is? It's not just that God forgives you of your sin, and, but then says, but you're still kind of disgusting. You're still kind of gross. And I don't want anything to do with you, but I do forgive you. But we can just kind of part our separate ways. It's not like that. This washes all your impurity away to not just make you not sinful, to make you righteous, to make you pure so that you are so lovely in God's sight. He wants you. And there is nothing separating you from him so that you can draw near to him and he can draw near to you. That is the level of forgiveness. That is the level of purification that will happen on that day for Israel. And it happens for every single believer who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't just have purification that happens at this time of cleansing. We have transformation. Notice verse 2. It will be on that day... The Lord of Yahweh of hosts says that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass away from the land. If you remember anything about Israel's history, in fact, if you open any, almost any part of the Old Testament, you will find out that Israel always has one of two problems. It's their so-called besetting sins. They either have a problem with idolatry or they have a problem with false prophets. It's always that way. Turn almost any random page of the Old Testament, and you will see that this is an issue. It doesn't take long for Israel in the book of Exodus to engage in idolatry. It doesn't take long for Israel to engage in the uh, sin of idolatry in the book of Joshua or Judges or 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings. It's all prevalent there, but here's what God says. When Israel is so forgiven in the future, when Israel is so forgiven in the future, so transformed in the future, here's how they will change. The sins that always ensnared them, they will be gone. They will be gone. Notice, I will cut off not just idols, but even the names of the idols. They will have no name. They will have no presence. 
You won't even say their names anymore. The vocabulary of Israel will change. This is actually quite fascinating. And in Hebrew, the word Baal can mean Baal, like you know of. It can also mean husband in Hebrew. But in Hosea, it says this, that Israel will be so transformed by God, their language will change. And they will never use that word anymore. The names of idols will be cut off. And notice, I love this, they will no longer be remembered. What does the word Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers. He will remember so that some things will never be remembered. Your sin, the consequences of your sin, the idolatry, the besetting sins, all of that will no longer be remembered anymore. Likewise, not just idolatry, but the prophets, false prophets, and even the source of their false prophecy, unclean spirit, they will all pass through the land. This is a transformation that is natural and supernatural. That is what will take place. Imagine such cleansing. There are always sins that entangle and snare us in this life. We know that. The struggle of Galatians 5 and Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do, and I struggle with the flesh and the spirit and war. That's real in our lives. Can you ever imagine a time when it's not that you don't even have the struggle anymore? You don't even remember that you had it. That is what this prophesies. That is a beautiful thing. And in place of sin, there will be total loyalty. So you have total purification, total transformation, total loyalty. Verse 3, it will be that if anyone still prophesies, notice the word if, why if? Because if you already got rid of all the pagan idolatry and prophecy, no one's going to be doing false prophecy. It's all gone. But let's just say hypothetically, if it were to happen, then notice the text, then his father and mother who gave birth to him. Why the emphasis on that? Because they gave this person life. And even though they gave this person life, what will they say to him? You shall not live. You shall not live. For you have spoken falsely in the name of Yahweh. In the book of Deuteronomy, it commands this, that if in chapter 13 it says that even if it is your son or your daughter or your father and mother, and they come to you and say, let us go worship idols, do you know what the Bible commands an Israelite to do? Kill them. It says kill them. Because your loyalty ultimately is not to your family, it is to who? To God. And you should be zealous for him. How many times did Israel keep that law? Zero. Never. We don't have any record of them doing that. At best, maybe with Elijah, you have it with the prophets of Baal, but that's not even family. They're imported. So all that to say is you never have that. But what is it saying here? Israel will be so transformed. They will truly love God over their mother and father. It is precisely like what Jesus says. If you do not hate your mother and father, deny yourself, then you cannot follow me. They will be true followers of Christ in their loyalty to him. And in fact, here's how far they go. They won't just say, you shall not live. Notice the last part of verse 3. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. They will not just be judge. They will be the what? Executioner. That is how zealous for Yahweh they will be. It is total loyalty. Now, again, that's a hypothetical situation, but it illustrates the zeal. 
in people's hearts for the Lord. It is so pure. It is so holy. That is what God cleanses people to be on that day. In verses 4 through 6, we see another aspect of cleansing, and that is this, that it isn't just total purification, total transformation, total loyalty, but total repudiation of sin. It will be in that day, verse 4, that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. The idea is this, that if there was a prophet who actually repented and he changed, and he's still in the millennial kingdom because that is what this is all concerning, the thousand-year reign of Christ, but you have like the vestiges of your false prophecy. You have the vestiges of that false old occupation. Well, what do you do? He wants to cover it up. So what they will not do, notice verse 4, is they will not put on a hairy mantle in order to deceive. He's going to change his wardrobe in order to make sure that people understand he's not a false prophet. He doesn't do that anymore. The hairy mantle is one of those things that prophets used to use. You saw it with Elijah, and you saw it with Elisha, and you also see it with John the Baptist. What did he wear? Camel skin, yes? Skin made, or garments made out of the skin of animals. This was typical for a prophet. Well, this one will not do that. But he will say, verse 5, I am not a prophet. I'm not that. I'm a cultivator of the ground. He will claim that he's not a prophet. Rather, he's the pinnacle of Israelite. Israelites were always supposed to be those who cultivated the ground. And he will try to give himself an alibi. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. His point is, for my whole life, I've never been able to be a prophet. I was a slave. And that happened since when I was a young boy, a youth. But because people are so, so vigilant, because they do not like sin, they will interrogate this guy further, and they will say this, verse 6, what are these wounds struck here between your arms? It's funny that you have wounds on your arms, and you remember in the book of 1 Kings, what did people do trying to get Baal's attention? They what? Slashed themselves on the arms. This is very, very typical. In fact, they could even slash themselves on the chest in pagan religion. This was prohibited in the Old Testament. And so people, zealous against sin, hunting down any sin that they could find, they're interrogating this guy and saying, well, you say that you're an upstanding Israelite, but you sure do look like a false prophet. You sure do protest a lot like a false prophet. Maybe you are a false prophet. And he says, no, no, no. Those are the wounds which I was struck in the house of my friends. Now, just think about this for a second. If somebody came up to you and you had some bumps and bruises and gashes, and they say, where do those come from? Do you think they're really going to buy? Oh, yeah, my, friend, my best friends, they did that to me. Either they're going to say, well, well, I think you need to get new friends, or we don't believe you. But this guy... He's so desperate to distance himself from his past, so desperate to repudiate all that he has done, he comes up with a lame excuse in the face of withering interrogation. And what does this demonstrate? People are zealous for God at this time. They will not let sin slide. And people hate their sins so much they will be so desperate to get rid of it, to repudiate it, to distance themselves from it, that they will use any excuse possible in order to show that they have no association with it anymore. At this time, when you have total loyalty, 
total zeal, total hatred of sin, total repudiation of wrong, where you hate sin and loathe yourself for your past sin that much, then you're free of sin. You're really free of sin. And that's what we all want, is it not? We want to be free of sin. And you say, well, that's wonderful. I'd love to be that free of sin. What does this have to do with Christmas? Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. At the very center of chapter 13, you have this verse. Why? Because it's the center of everything about cleansing. You can't have cleansing without Christ. You can't have sanctification and salvation without the shepherd. And so we know that this shepherd must die. This is the same shepherd of Zechariah chapter 11, who's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That one, you betrayed him, but through it, he accomplished cleansing. And even more, it's this, as we heard this even this morning in John chapter 10, the way you have life and the way the shepherd guides you home is by giving his own life. That's what he does. That's what it means to be a shepherd. False shepherds take, the true shepherd gives. And that is what is taking place here. But how can he accomplish this? How can the sword be against this shepherd? How can the weapon of capital punishment execute this one? Well, there's two requirements, and notice the rest of verse 7, against the man. What do you have to be in order to fulfill this role as shepherd? What do you have to be to sacrifice your own life for the sheep? You have to be the man. You have to be not just a supernatural being. You have to take on flesh. You have to die. And there's two reasons. Because only people, only human beings can die. Supernatural beings in their supernatural states, they don't die. And furthermore, to give help to man and not the angels, like Hebrews reminds us, then Christ had to become what? Man. He had to be man. If you want cleansing for man, you have to be a man to get it. And so that's what God took on. And notice, you can't just be a man, though. This isn't just a task for any human being Notice the next phrase. It's a twofold requirement, not just, first of all, the man, but against my associate. What does it mean to be an associate of God? It means that you are equal to him. It means you stand with him. It means you are his peer. You are his equal. What is Yahweh saying here? Who is the shepherd? He is both God and man. When do we have God and man? When did the word become flesh and dwell amongst us? Christmas. Christmas. That's what we have right here. That's what we have right here. If you don't have Christmas, you don't have the sword being able to go against the shepherd. If you don't have the sword going against the shepherd, you don't have the forgiveness of sins and cleansing. If you don't have the forgiveness of sins and cleansing, you don't have any of the blessings that we're about to talk about. Christmas is here. In fact, it is even more than what I just said. Notice, Christmas determines the cross. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. The cross determines history. Not just destiny, but history. The sheep will be scattered. This is even quoted 
in Matthew and in Luke because when Christ is crucified, Israel is scattered and the saints are scattered and history, church history is filled with the fact that we are scattered in persecution, that this is not our home, that we are wandering sojourners. And in fact, notice the next phrase, the last phrase of verse seven, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Yes, there will be suffering. There will be trouble in this time. And what does God often use to bring people to himself, bring people to the realization of what he accomplished on the cross? He uses trouble. He uses harm. He uses trial. And he will have that for his little ones. And he will even sanctify them in that way. What happens because of Christmas? Christmas leads to the cross. The cross leads to the flow of history, the flow of church history, the flow of persecution. And all of that is to bring his people to himself. And that will culminate not only in history, but in destiny. Verse 8, it will be in all the land. In the end times now, we have moved from Christmas to the cross throughout all history, through the rapture, now into the tribulation period. It will be in all the land, declares Yahweh. Two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last. There's a way to refine God's people, Israel. One way is you get rid of all those who are rebellious. And there will be rebellious people in Israel. Two-thirds will be executed in the end times. Two-thirds. That's a lot. But notice verse 9. And I will bring the third part through fire. He will preserve one-third, and they will be indestructible. Why? Notice, he brings them through the fire. They will be sanctified. Why? Because they will be refined as silver is what? Refined. And they will be approved. How much approved? They will test them as gold is tested. You always want to test gold because you don't want to buy fool's gold. And God says these people will be tested and they will be found as gold. That is their heart. And notice this, they will call on my name. It's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, God constantly condemned his people Israel for never calling on his name. You think, if you knew the holy God, the almighty one, wouldn't you, in your desperation, call on him? Isaiah says this, they refuse to turn to me. They refuse to call on me. And here's what Isaiah also said. So I will refuse to answer them on the day of their distress. Now do you see why it's a miracle, why it's so amazing? They will call on my name. Throughout all their history, they never wanted to talk with their God. They never wanted to depend on him. They never wanted to care about him. Finally, they will because they'll be cleansed because of their Messiah. And notice, they won't just call on my name. God could have at that point said, a little late, I've been waiting for, I don't know, several thousand years. Thank you, but no thank you. But what does God say? And I will answer them. God will say, I've been waiting for this, and it's my turn to answer you. That's the dependence and the trust that they will have. And here's the love that they will have. I will say, they are my people. I own them. They are my own. They belong to me. Why? Because he's cleansed them with a fountain. 
a fountain that has washed away not only all their sin, but all their impurity. They are lovely in his sight. There is nothing keeping them back. They are beautiful and pure. And so they are mine. That's what God says. And because they have been so transformed, they so hate sin, they so love and are zealous for God, they will say, Yahweh is not just God. Yahweh is my God. Not even our God. Corporate. My God. Personal. And so for a rebellious people that never loved God, they will be cleansed one day, all because a Savior came at Christmas to buy them back. To buy them back. That is why Christmas is beautiful. Because at Christmas, it's not just a cute moment. This is the treasure. Because this is where we are bought back where Christ took on what we could never redeem to redeem it for us. That's cleansing. That's what takes place through Christmas. Well, it's not just cleansing. We have chapter 14. There's conquest. Conquest, chapter 14. We don't just have cleansing. We have conquest. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. What happens in chapter 14 is you have a little bit of a repeat of what takes place in chapter 12, but it's from a different camera angle. Those of us familiar with film and movies and even stories that tell things from different angles, we can understand and empathize with this. And you say, what's the angle here? Notice chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh. We've heard about the phrase in that day. We've heard about the phrase the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. But this is a different phrase. This is not just the day that God owns. This is not just the day of his wrath. This isn't just the day of his judgment. This isn't just the day of his fulfillment of his promises. It says this, behold, a day is coming for Yahweh. This is the day that showcases Yahweh. This is the day that Yahweh shows off his glory. It isn't just so that he can do things for you and me. That's the day of Yahweh. This is the day that he does things for himself and for his son and for his honor. And if you think about it that way, if Yahweh is about to do something for his own son and for his own glory, you know he's going to pull out all the stops and it's going to be amazing. That's what this day is all about and that's what we're about to see. And how does this day for Yahweh that magnifies him, that he pulls out all the stops about, that he's planned out from the beginning before the foundations of the world to be majestic and glorious beyond anything that we have ever experienced or observed. How is that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen at the darkest hour of Israel's history. Notice the rest of verse 1 of chapter 14. When the spoil taken away from you will be divided among you, Israel will be defeated. They will be so defeated that the enemies will capture all the treasures, all the spoils of war from them, and they will be so at ease and so confident that they won't just take them and run away into their own camps and into their own fortifications to divide everything up. They'll feel so free that they'll just be hanging out in Jerusalem because they believe that they cannot be conquered and they cannot be defeated, and they'll just start parceling things out then and there because they feel so secure. And God confirms this, verse 2. It will be a dark hour for Israel. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This will be the greatest battle, the largest battle, and it will be the greatest defeat. 
the city will be captured. This is a terrible, terrible thing. Most countries, except the United States of America, have their capitals in the middle of the country. Have you noticed that? We have ours right on the edge of the border uh, because, I don't know, we're Americans. Well, actually, that's actually not really the history of the matter, but you get what I mean. That we are in the center. Most capitals are in the center of a country because that's you protect your capital. And if the city is captured, that means... The whole nation has been captured. That's what happened. This is the greatest defeat. And then you have the greatest loss. The houses are plundered. It's not just property loss, it's people loss. The women are ravished. And here's what it means. Half the city will go forth in exile. This is national death. If you stop and think about it, throughout Israel's history, they faced exile before. They know this. But it's always been that they've been captured by one country or maybe even a conflagration of countries. But God has always used another country to bail them out. But how many nations are gathered against Jerusalem this time? All of them. So if they're exiled at this point, there's no nation to bail them out. Basically what is going on here is that the nation is facing national death. But in this dark hour where atrocities are being done, the loss is intense, national death and extinction looms. We cannot forget the opening words. Look at verse 2. Who is the one that gathered all this? God. I will gather. Yahweh is in total control. You must remember that even in your darkest hour, the Lord is still in control. Even for the Israelites there who were discouraged, God put in their face the truth that nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. And that is why at the end of verse 2, you say half the city will go forth in exile. The nation is on the verge of extinction. It's true, but it's only what? Half. What happened to the other? Half. Those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. They will survive. They will thrive. They will not be excommunicated. They will not be executed. They will survive. And the the question is, well, why? Because the God who gathered all the nations to make the dark hour, that same God, verse 3, then Yahweh will go forth. At the moment where it looks like all hope is lost, and everything has collapsed, and the nation is about to end, Yahweh comes down from heaven at this moment. He takes the initiative, and he intervenes, and he fights against these nations. Do you know what the name Israel means? The name Israel means Yahweh fights for you. And now Israel will see what their name always meant. Yahweh will fight against these nations. And I love this, as the day when he fights on a day of battle. You know that Israel's history has a lot of battles. Have you noticed this? Genesis, Abraham fought a bunch of kings. Exodus, God had to fight the Egyptians. 
numbers. You have conquests against the Ammonites and other people. And then you have Joshua, a bunch of conquests, Judges, a bunch of fights, First and Second Samuel, more wars, David and Goliath being one of them, First and Second Kings, more wars on top of that. Then even Israel has to fight with their neighbors when they have times in Ezra and Nehemiah. What you have is a series of conquests and battles and fights, and often many of them are miraculous in nature. Here's what God says. Take all of them and combine them all. Take all the miracles that I've ever done, hailstones from heaven, floods that wipe out chariots, confusion amongst everyone. Take all of that and combine it all, 10 plagues, if you will. Put them all together, and God says, that's what I will do in one moment of battle on that day. That's what he will do. Yahweh will fight against these nations as the day when he fights on a day of battle. All of their rich history of miraculous intervention after miraculous intervention, he will do in a moment, and it will be awesome. It will be awesome. And at that moment, he will defeat defeat. In that day, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Why on the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives is a place that has a reputation. Places can have reputation. Sometimes you might remember a vacation place you took with your family. That has a reputation. Sometimes my college students remember certain parts of campus with a certain reputation. That's true, too. You can always associate a place with a reputation. The Mount of Olives had a reputation, defeat. Always stood for defeat. When David ran away from Absalom, guess where he ran over? The Mount of Olives. When, the, when King Zedekiah abandoned his people right before they were going to be exiled, guess where he ran over? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives always stood for defeat. And so as the nation is drawing to an end in their dying moment and the risk of national extinction, they look to the Mount of Olives thinking, yep, we're going to be abandoned again. Even the presence of God went across the Mount of Olives when God left his people in judgment in the book of Ezekiel. And they, that is the people of Israel on this eschatological day, would be thinking, well, this is just going to happen again. But what do they see this time? They don't see kings running away. They don't see the presence of God departing. Who do they see? In that day, his feet will what? Stand. They see their savior. They see him standing. He is not leaving them. He will not depart from them. He will not abandon them. And he will be in front of Jerusalem on the east because he is coming toward them. And in fact, he will do this because he has broken this reputation of defeat the mount of olives will be split in middle from east to west why because the monument of defeat has been what defeated and it will now be replaced by a new monument a valley that connects the mount of olives to the city of jerusalem so that israel can run through the valley to their savior defeat will be swallowed up in victory that is what will happen And that is precisely why it says in verse 5, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains. You're going to run through this valley. And you will even, it'll even reach the place of Azel. You say, what is Azel? Azel was the place before where Israel gathered to try to defend themselves against Babylon and not trust the Lord. It was the stronghold where they thought they could find security outside of God. You know what Israel will do on that day? They'll run right past it. They will say, no city, 
no strongholds, nothing. That is not what saves us. We don't believe that anymore. And they will run like you run in an earthquake because, you know, people don't have stop, drop, and cover in those times, even though that might be wise. But in that time, when you had an earthquake, you just ran. You didn't know what to do. And they will run with that kind of fervor of an earthquake, this time to who? To Christ. And at this moment, a people who never loved their Savior, in fact, in people in their history who killed their Savior, will love him and will run to him. And the darkest moment of Israel's history will turn into their brightest moment because Yahweh, and I love this, look at this. Zechariah, as he sees and prophesies this, notice what he says, then Yahweh, my God, will come. He is so overcome by all that is happening and all that this vision explains that he interjects the word, my God, because he loves what Yahweh has planned for his people. He loves that Yahweh remembers them in this way. And all his holy ones, that's the angels, they will be with him. There are days when you and I can be discouraged. There are days when we feel like the bad guys always win. In fact, truth be told, sometimes when I watch movies, I just skip over the parts where bad guys win. I don't like watching those things. If I'm going to be entertained, let me be entertained. And I don't want to watch bad things. If I wanted to watch that, I'd watch the news. There's... And I just call it, I just watch the good parts of the movie, when the bad guys get destroyed, or when things are funny. I like that. Here's what chapter 14, verse 1 through 6 says. From this point forward, there will only be good parts, because defeat will be defeated. Because Christ, in such a powerful, overwhelming victory, will put defeat to an end. There will be no more loss. There will be no more setbacks. There will be no more discouragement because Christ will have defeated all defeat. And the joy that you get at the greatest triumphs that you've ever had will pale in comparison to the joy that will be at this moment. And you say, I love that. I I want that kind of joy. I want only the good parts version of life that will come at the millennial kingdom. But what does this have to do with Christmas? Everything. Because at Christmas, Christ was born into a ministry. And at that ministry, here's what he secured. Do you remember on the night that he was betrayed, he was at the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know where that is located? Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, the temptation is clear. The trial is clear. Will you, like all kings before you, leave and abandon your people like all kings who preceded you? And does Jesus go away from Jerusalem or does he go back to Jerusalem? He goes back to Jerusalem to die for his people. He is not like the other kings. And for this very reason, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven from what place? The Mount of Olives. And what do the angels say? In the same way, he will return. This is secured by what ensues from Christmas, what ensues from the first advent. This, some people wonder, is this just a good metaphor This isn't just a metaphor. This is what will literally happen with all of its theological and spiritual implications. Why? Because Christ bought that. He bought that by what he did at Gethsemane. He bought that by his death and resurrection and ascension. And it is guaranteed from Old Testament to New Testament. This is conquest. Conquest. You say, can it get better than this? Yeah. Cleansing, conquest, creation. Creation. Verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. Think about this. It will be in that day 
there will be no light. The whole world will be renewed. This is extreme world makeover. There will be no light. You say, well, that's not pleasant. I don't want to be in the dark. Well, that's because the luminaries will dwindle so that God's glory will be alone. Here's what you need to understand. God created light to reflect his own light. But in the Old Testament and even in modern day, people use light all the time to worship paganism. Israel and its neighbors worship the sun, moon, and stars. In fact, this is the very reason why the tabernacle was configured the way it was. It was configured east to west, so that whenever you entered the tabernacle, your back would be against the sun. You were saying, I do not worship the sun, S-U-N, I worship Yahweh. That's what you were constantly doing. Because people knew that people feared and looked to the stars and the moon and the sun to, as deities, but, but there will be a day when light will finally be what it was always supposed to be, the glory of God, and that alone. There will be no sun, moon, and stars. There will be no luminaries. Why? Because the only light is God's light, the light of his glory, the best light, the most warm light, the most brilliant light, the most comforting light, the light that dispels all darkness, and there will be no distraction, and there will be no confusion of it, and that will be that light. And it's not just that light will change, time will change, verse 7. It will be a unique day. You know what that word unique day in Hebrew means? It means day one. Day one. Where have you heard the phrase day one? Genesis. We're starting another creation. It'll be made brand new. And, there, and this time, even though, yes, it'll still be 24-hour days, you'll have day and night, you'll have evening time and all this kind of stuff, but it's going to be a totally different kind of day because there will never be darkness. There will only be what? Light. That's what it says in verse 7. You have to realize that the days that we have in our lives, Ephesians 5 puts it, they're evil. The days are evil. That's why we have to redeem the time. Likewise, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this, that there is nothing new under the sun. You know, and technically it should say under heaven because that's the normal Hebrew phrase, but it says under the sun for a reason because as long as the sun exists, you are subject to a futility in your life, but there will be a day. Ecclesiastes 12.2 predicts this, and Zechariah picks up on this. There will be no sun, and your time will no longer be futile. Your time will no longer be restless. In our lives, the days are evil. Time passes, and sometimes it's very hard to wait, is it not? Christmas. You're probably waiting for me to finish. Christmas. You want to go. We want things. We are impatient. And sometimes time is not a healer. It hurts. We understand that. And God says, I will reconfigure time so that you will never be futile for you again. And it will never hurt you again. That is a new creation. Here's another one. How about water? You say living water that will flow out from Jerusalem. Can water have a stigma of judgment? Yeah, like the flood. That would be one. And here's another one, the Dead Sea. That's water. But because of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's an area known about judgment. It's like when I go to Israel with students and they're having fun floating in the Dead Sea. It's so nifty. It heals my skin. And I say, well, you're just enjoying floating in God's judgment in his wrath. Dr. Chow, you just take all the joy away. (laughs) But one day, Jerusalem will be elevated to be the watershed, and water will flow from the temple in Jerusalem 
so that it will wash out the entire Dead Sea. In fact, in Ezekiel 47, it'll be renamed the Living Sea. You know why? Because judgment will be washed away. We know that we live in a sinful, depraved world, and the scars of judgment and the scars and remembrance of all the consequences and all the disadvantages and all the harms and all the weight and all the discouragement and all the sadness, it's there. One day, even water will reflect not judgment, but just the cleansing work of salvation. That's it. And it won't be the Dead Sea. It'll be the Sea of Living. It'll be the Sea of Life. And that's all you'll know. And think about this. If God refabricates light and time, and even water, so that it all perfectly reflects the goodness that he has, and the glory that he possesses, and it removes and eradicates all kinds of futility, and all kinds of discouragement, and all kinds of distraction, then you know he has made this world to be new. Every element is new. Every part and piece is new. How much more for everything that stems and ensues from all of that, there will be a new creation, a renewed creation in the millennial kingdom, a renewed creation in the millennial kingdom, and it will be made fresh and right. Why? Because the creator came to this world to redeem it, and that happened at Christmas. Well, there's one last point, and that's kingdom. Kingdom, and this is verses 9 through 21. Just imagine this. Yahweh, verse 9, will be king over all the earth. We have presidents, we have prime ministers, we have people who always want to be king. There will be one day one king. And in that day, Yahweh will be the only one. This is the fulfillment of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one. Finally, that will be fulfilled. He's always been one. But now the whole world will reflect that. And in fact, they won't just reflect that, they'll confess that. Because his name is what? One. They will worship no other God. They will finally bow the knee to him. Not just a perfect king, a perfect capital. The whole land will be changed. Jerusalem will be massively big. And everything that Israel lost in wars, from Benjamin's gate to the first corner and to the first gate and to the Tower of Hananel, everything that was prophesied, they'll get it back. They'll get it back. The city will demonstrate that. And they'll dwell in it in security. And so you'll have an amazing king, amazing capital, and you'll have amazing calm. Verse 12, why will there be no enemies in the millennial kingdom? Look at what Yahweh will do to them earlier on in the battle of Armageddon. This will be the plague, verse 12, which Yahweh will plague all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. You say, man, this sounds like the movies. Well, the movies got it from the Bible. And their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. They won't be able to see what's going on. They won't be able to shout a warning. And look, you say, well, that, and then they're dead. Well, even if they weren't dead, verse 13, there will be abundant confusion from Yahweh that will fall on them and they'll kill each other. And you say, okay, well, then they're really dead. But let's say that didn't get them all. Verse 14, then Judah will fight on that day and they'll get the rest, which are probably all dead. So the idea is this, with that kind of judgment, there will never dare to be an enemy during the millennial kingdom. It'll be perfect peace, peace on earth, just like was promised. In our lives, we always live under danger. We always live under threat. We always live under risk. Can you imagine life without any of that? That's here because Christ came to have peace 
on earth. You say, can it get better than that? Yeah, celebration, verse 16 through 19. What are they going to worship God for? They're going to gather to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You say, why celebrate the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths is a celebration to say this in the Old Testament. God got us home. He delivered us from the wilderness and he took us back home. You know what we're going to say in the millennial kingdom? Lord, thank you. We're home. And thank you for getting us here. Our whole life has been in exile. Our whole life has been a sojourner. That's why we named the group this way. But one day you'll get us home. And when you do, for a thousand years, every year, that's what we'll celebrate. God got us home. And you might say, well, I read that if you don't go to worship, God's not going to let rain go on you and he's going to strike you with plagues. What's that about? Simple. Worship is the highest priority. Sometimes we think, oh man, murder is very serious. Why do we think that? Because the consequence is very serious. Worship's the ultimate priority. So what should have the most serious consequence? Worship. Failing to worship. Finally, all priorities will be straight. Finally, the Father will enforce what he always wanted for his son. And for us as believers, all we'll do is celebrate that God got us home. That God got us home. And if you don't have calm and you don't have celebration, then verse 20, you have consecration. Consecration. On horses that are unclean, they'll be holy to Yahweh. They'll be as holy as a priest. Think about that. And the pots in the house of Yahweh will be like the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to Yahweh. Holiness will pervade everything. And you say, why does the book end with this whole discussion about the temple? What was Zechariah trying to get the people to do? Build the what? The temple. And he said this, your work will never be in vain. In the end, here's what God will use it for. He will not only make a temple, but he will make all things so right, so clean, so pure, that everything in the world will be holy. And God will be there with us. Your work is never in vain. Brothers and sisters, if you think, what did Christmas buy? Cleansing? Conquest, creation, and a kingdom. And that's why we give thanks to God for Christ. What he took on, he redeemed. And we are thankful that he came to this world to take on the world. And we are thankful that he came to this world to take on flesh, to redeem it all, so that we would, in the end, be redeemed. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this day, for this Christmas, where we remember that What your son assumed, he redeemed. And he assumed the flesh. And he assumed life in this world. So that everywhere where the curse is found, he would root it out and make it right. Every element corrected. Every foundational thing repaired. And made perfect and right. And that is our hope that anchors the soul. And we know that that is sure. Because the beginning is the end. And just as the beginning Christmas has happened, we know your return is equally sure to accomplish all these things. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh and saved us. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.